Welcome to the Yukon RUF podcast. RUF at Yukon is a ministry that relies completely on the financial support of churches and individuals like you in order to serve the Yukon community. You can support RUF at Yukon by going to ruf.org slash Yukon. Well, thanks again for coming, and good to be with you all on this second-to-last week of the semester, and man, it's gone by quick, right? Pretty quick? Feels too fast, maybe? Um, Well, you guys know what RUF is about. You guys have been around, and um, yeah, like Taylor was saying, definitely come back next week uh, just to kind of celebrate a great semester, and end on a good note and we definitely want to honor our seniors and others that might be leaving and send them off right and so we're going to do that and um but tonight we're going to wrap up our series on the books of the bible and so we've made we've covered this is book number 10 of the bible we're going to look at tonight uh second samuel and so what we've been doing is kind of tracing out the story of the bible by looking at a passage from each book just kind of going through the list and so we come to second samuel and this is a passage that many people are not familiar with but it really is an important one and it sets up like the whole rest of the bible so it's really critical and it comes from second samuel chapter 7 verses 1 through 17. So the last time we did David and Goliath, and so where we're reading today, uh, David is king now, and uh, things are going well. And so that's where we pick up. So uh, I'll start at 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who you shall who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right, let's pray before we look into this text. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word, uh, which makes sense of our world, our life, our existence. I pray that we would gain uh, some sense uh, of that tonight. I pray that you'd help us to understand the word. And more importantly, I pray that the word would form us, uh, that it would change us, uh, that we ultimately become nearer to you and more like you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we've been looking at the Bible this semester, kind of tracing out the story of Scripture and seeing how it tells a coherent story from start to finish. And uh, what we've seen is that it reveals what, who God is and what he's up to in our world. And that's what we've been looking at. And so we started with God creating a good world and into this good world an intruder enters Sin, evil, death, and everything falls apart. And so we started there with the fact that we live in a good world, uh, but that evil uh, taints God's world. Evil distorts all the good. So it's still good, uh, but it's a shadow of what it was meant to be. And in that text, in that first text, we saw God's commitment immediately to save the world, to restore it to how it was, and to save for himself a people uh, to live with forever and that's kind of the so that that's like the entry point of the story god is determined to save and so we saw that he picks a people israel and they're enslaved in egypt and yet he miraculously rescues them and he makes them his people and he gives them good laws a good way to live and he says i'm going to plant you down in this promised land this place where you can extend my kingdom outward uh, where you can represent me to the world and, because I'm, my plan isn't just to save you, but I want to just blow this up and send it out everywhere and save the world. And so uh, we saw that, you know, there's a lot of ups and downs in the story so far. And God's people have failed miserably many times up to this point. And we saw the story of the time of the judges where things were just really awful in Israel. And yet God maintains his commitment to keep the plan going. And so... Um, the point of the story has basically been like, this is the true story. This is the story that makes sense of life. And it will only, your life will only make sense if this story is your story, if it's your account of reality. And if it is, it means that your life belongs to God. If that's, if this story is true, it means your life belongs to him. And it means he's worthy of your life. He's worthy of your worship and your devotion and your love and your submission and worth giving your life away to, which is a really big claim. And uh, so what I want to look at tonight in this text is what is it about this God that should make us say, yep, God's everything. Like this is everything. I'll do what he says. Uh, He's my authority and his word is my authority. I'm going to live for him. And what I want to show us in this text is that we see three things about God. Uh, We see the nearness of God, the grace of God, and the faithfulness of God uh, in a powerful way in this little snippet from the time of David. So first of all, the nearness of God. Um, 
Remember, God's people are in the land now. Like, God had promised them the land, and they were like, no way we'll ever be able to take that. It'll be way too hard. Uh, But God uh, gives it to them. He subdues their enemies, and they're mostly gone. There's still some around, but like most of them are gone now, and even in spite of Israel's failures. And now King David is on the throne, and like, things are looking up. Like, things are looking pretty good. So much so that David, in the beginning of this text, is like, you know looking at his house and he's like i got quartz countertops sub-zero appliances heated hardwood floors like you know things are pretty good and when people look at me they think like wow david is so high above me i want people to look at god's i want god to have a house that people look up at him and say oh he's so far above me and nathan who's like the prophet he's kind of like david's pastor He's like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. That sounds like a good plan. Um, You know, because up to this point, God lived, as it mentions in the text, in the tabernacle. You know, his presence was most, uh, like whenever he wanted to be present with his people, he showed up above this Ark of the Covenant, this box that uh, the sins of Israel were confessed over and the tablets of the Ten Commandments were in there. And that's kind of in this tent above the Ark was where he showed up. And um, so that's the plan. Let's Let's get God a dope house too and but in verses kind of like four through seven here god's like when did i ever say anything about wanting or needing a house like for you to build me something i have i ever said you know he's kind of being like a little joking with him like i don't remember ever saying that that's what i want it's not really how i operate and in fact let's recap where I've been. And he, you know, he recounts how like, I've been with you in this tent, like living in a tent, the tabernacle, ever since we left Egypt. Like that's been my like MO. That's what I have been doing. And he goes on to tell David how he's still like working to subdue God's en- or the enemies of God's people and get them in the place he has picked out for them. He hasn't even picked it out yet, the spot uh, for his people. And the point is, If God's people don't have a permanent spot yet, then God doesn't want a permanent spot either. Okay? Because God is near to his people. If if God's people live in tents, God's like, I'm you better believe you're going to find me in a tent, okay? Uh, He's not at all concerned about how that makes him look. In fact, he likes how that makes him look because that's what he's like. Uh, He wants people to understand that he's way different way better than any other God of the peoples around them because he's the God that comes close to his people. He wants people's awe of him to come from the way he closely identifies with people rather than just, you know, how powerful and beautiful he is, although he is that too. Uh, This is why one of the names of God in the Bible is Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, Why is it important to know that God is near? Like, why do we need to know that? We need to know it because nearness is important. Nearness is really important. And I want you to think about a concept that exists among humans in our world. Snuggling. Anybody into snuggling? Uh, I have little kids. They like to snuggle. You know, sometimes my kids are just like, oh, I want to snuggle. Or, you know, and, and snuggling is great, right? Like someone you love, loved one, maybe a pet. I don't know. Whatever. Like. When you were a kid, maybe you remember being a kid and you kind of grew out of it, which is sad because snuggling is the best. But, uh, you know, what does snuggling do? Like it accomplishes nothing. All it is is like getting up close to someone. Right. Isn't that all like it doesn't serve any purpose other than being 
close, and yet it's a very human thing to do, right? And especially like when we're in crisis, when everything's going wrong, when something bad has happened, you know, what do we say to our loved ones? We say, just stay with me. Just stay with me. Uh, You don't need to do anything. I just don't want to be alone right now. How often have you heard that before? Um, Not being alone is important. Uh, I don't know if you guys know the story of what life was like in Romania in the 1980s under communism, but uh, after communism fell in Romania, uh, the Western world kind of entered Romania and found all these orphanages filled with babies that were just left alone all the time. Like they were given like the nutrients to survive, but that was it. And so you can read about, I mean, many of these babies are now grownups today, although many of them have not survived uh, because their life is too hard because of the neglect they experienced at an early age. Uh, because babies and all humans need to be near to people that love them or they literally wither up and die. Um, why does this matter for us? Uh, a lot of you are going through some pretty challenging stuff. Like I, t- I hear what's going on in your life and a lot of you are going through challenging stuff and you're, al- and you're living like alone in a gigantic universe. And if that's you, like no wonder life is sad or no wonder life is depressing or no wonder that it's hopeless. No wonder you're anxious and tired uh, if you're all alone. And you can know a pretty good amount about God and you can know a pretty good amount about the Bible and still live this way. I often live this way, right? I often forget that God is right here with me. And so I want to remind us tonight, just in passing, you know, God doesn't sit way up there and wait for us to claw our way up to him, to be near to him. Uh, He comes close and he's with us even now. Think about that for a minute. Just take a moment to acknowledge the presence of God here. He's here right now. And maybe that seems a little abstract to you, the presence of God. And, but, you know, the, what the Bible talks about is one of the main ways God is present is through his people. When his people are gathered together, God is present. That's uh, a way to experience God's presence tangibly is to be around other believers, which is why, like, RUF exists. Uh, because it's impossible to go through life alone. College alone is horrible. And so instead, uh, we gather as God's people and anyone else who wants to come and see what it's about uh, to experience the presence of God and the presence of one another. The Bible reveals a God that comes close, a God who's near to his people. Uh, Maybe you haven't been living in that reality that God comes very close, but you need to start because life is too sad, too perilous to be all alone. Uh, So you need to come near to the people of God, and you need to know that God's right there with you wherever you go. So the nearness of God, but next I want to look at the grace of God in this passage. And this is amazing. Uh, So David's like trying to do something big for God, right? He's like, I got all this nice stuff, God, I'm going to do something right back at you, you know, for you. And God's like, nah, (laughs) no. He's like, David, you seem to be forgetting how this relationship has always worked. And he does this recap and he's like, First of all, in verse 8, he calls David, he's like, listen, my servant, David, like, remember who you were. Like, you were, you're king now, but like, you were tending sheep when I started with you. And back then, like, tending sheep was like, you know, you don't get much lower than that. 
And he's like, that's where you started. And I kind of brought you along. And I came and I got you and I made you king against all odds. Like, I did everything. Uh, Your success in battles is because of me. And I'm going to keep on protecting my people from enemies. Like, I'm going to keep doing this. In fact, I'm actually going to build you a house. We're going to talk a little bit bit more about that later. Um, You know, think about doing something for God. Like, God can speak things into existence. He is the giver of life. Like, what are you going to do for him that, like, actually matters, right? All you can do is receive. And that is called grace. Uh, When someone just receives and there's no, like, give and take. It's hard, right? Because we don't like grace. Like, we like, if someone gives something to us, like, I want to give it back. I don't want to, like, it makes us feel our weakness when we receive. Uh, It makes us feel small. This is why, like, you know, the stereotype of, like, men don't like to ask for directions. And, I mean, really, no one likes to ask for directions, right? Like, you're out driving and you don't want to ask for help. You want to figure it out on your own, right? Because if you have to ask for help, what? You feel like, well, I guess I don't know what I'm doing. I guess I'm small. I guess I don't like have it all together. It forces us to admit weakness. And we don't like that with God either. I don't, I don't, I don't want to be someone who needs anything. I don't want to need God. But reality says, if God made you, and you have spent the better part of your life avoiding him and rebelling against him actively, then your position in the universe is pretty small. And the wonder of the gospel is God pursues even us, even rebels and wanderers and love to save them and bring them back and to set them in the highest place, right? So grace, you could see a lot of people use the definition of grace and they say it's not getting, it's getting what you don't deserve, a gift. And that's like a pretty good, but really like grace is getting the opposite of what you deserve. Grace is like, you know, if you say, well, grace is like, uh, I give you a hundred dollars or you give me a hundred dollars and you're like, wow, that's really nice. Like that's, that's grace. But, you know, imagine like if you slapped me like Will Smith style and then I gave you a hundred dollars, <laughs> right? Like that would be true grace. I'm giving you the opposite of what you deserve. And that's what God's like. God gives his people the opposite of what they deserve. Uh, And by the way, this is different from every other religion. Like study any other religion and what you'll find is that, you know, it reveals some kind of deity that essentially is like, if you scratch my my back, I'll scratch yours. You know, you do something for me, I'll do something for you. You know, whether it be Islam or Buddhism or anything, you know, and there's no security in that because how could you ever know you've done enough? Like, you could do a lot for God, but how could you know, like, you've done enough to be secure, to be okay? In fact, you know, the last words of Buddha were, never cease striving. Which is like, uh, okay. I don't, is that, like, supposed to be good news? Like, you know, it's not at all, right? As opposed to the God of the Bible who says, I do it all. Just receive my grace. Uh, In this passage, in this chapter, God is actually the subject of the sentence 23 times. It's just this way of saying, like, God does it all. Okay, but this way of thinking has snuck into David's thinking, and it sneaks into ours, too, where he's like, you know, I've got to do something for God, though. In fact, uh, a few years ago, 
long before any of you were on this campus, uh, someone tried to organize like a worship night at UConn and uh, they said, you know, like, let's get all the Christians at UConn together and let's like have a worship night. And they wanted to get RUF involved and all the other groups. And I was like, okay, sure. Like, sounds pretty good. And, and then I started to find, I was asking questions from the organizers about like, well, why are you doing this? And they said like, well, we believe that like, essentially what was going on is like, they thought they were part of this movement that was like, someone kind of started this and they said, if we like have six big worship events in the state of Connecticut, that God will like really start to do some big things in Connecticut. And what, you know, so he wants us to, so Yukon is going to be one of the six big nights. And, you know, that was the point where I was like, uh, no, you know, it sounds kind of good, right? Like, let's all do something big for God. Like what could be wrong with that? Except it's totally wrong because it's not at all how God works. God doesn't want anything from you. Like he's not waiting for you to do something so that he'll bless you or do something big or anything like that. Um, so I want to, is your view of God that he's waiting for you to get serious for him to bless you? Do you live your life like, oh man, you know, God's probably disappointed with me and he's waiting for me to like get serious and then like some things will turn around or I really need to like get my future secure. So I'm going to get serious about God so that he'll bless my future, you know, or, you know, I talk to a lot of you about relationship with God and faith. And we talk a lot about prayer and reading the Bible and how those are, you know, it's right that we talk about it because they're good ways to relate to God and they reveal a lot about our faith. But the point if we've talked about that, you've probably heard me say like, don't do this to get something from God. It won't work. Like the point of prayer and reading the Bible and devotion, it's not to draw him close. He's already close. Like if you don't experience that, it's because like you're, you're just missing it. Uh, don't do it to receive his blessing. He's already blessed you. He's already for you. Uh, read the Bible because of how wonderful he is. Pray because he's the God of the universe. Uh, but don't do that. Don't be like, well, he'll be disappointed in me if I don't, because that's just not how God works. It's not how he operates. He's a God of grace. Okay, so he's near and he's the God of grace. Uh, finally, I want to look at the faithfulness of God in this text. And uh, David kind of shows God that he wants to build him a temple, a house. And in verse 11, God's like, no, I'm actually going to build you a house. And it's this play on words in Hebrew. And what he means is I'm going to build you like a house, like a dynasty. And what this means is someone like David, someone from your line is always going to be king. And that's going to be that way forever. Nothing is going to stop God from making this happen. Uh, in verse 12, he says, when you die, like David dies, and his first son is, the first next king is Solomon, right? And he says, one of your sons will sit on the throne. Uh, it's a way of saying death won't stop this promise. You can die. The next guy can die. The next guy can die. It's going to keep going, okay? Death won't stop it. Uh, and he says in verse 14, when they sin, it still won't stop my plan. You know, I'll discipline them, but I won't withdraw what? My steadfast love. Okay, so death can't stop it. Sin and rebellion can't stop this promise from happening. And remember, this is all part of God's plan to save the world. You know, it started with committing to a people, Israel. And it's led us to this point where David is king. And 
you know, the whole point was to show the world what God's like and to save the world. And now it's this big, even bigger commitment to David, the king of Israel. And the whole point is to save the world, to save it from evil, to make it the way it's meant to be. And so how does the plan go? This is the plan. How does it go? Uh, the rest of the Old Testament traces out all the kings. Like, it's kind of about, like, following this line now. King after king after king. Some of them are pretty good. Most of them are not very good, okay? And, you know, the general idea is, like, if a king knows God and listens to God, then things for all of God's people are going to go pretty well. And, but if a king doesn't know God and doesn't listen to God, then life for Israel, God's people, is going to be pretty bad, And that's bad for this overall plan of God's people being the ones who show the world God so that God can save the whole world. And so there's a lot of bad kings and a lot of bad stuff starts happening after this. Um, Eventually the temple does get built. Solomon builds the temple. That's great. Yay. A couple hundred years go by and that temple is destroyed by an invading army and God's people are trucked off into exile. Uh, as the Old Testament ends, Israel barely exists anymore. And then, you know, we don't have it in the Bible, but soon Rome would come and conquer Israel. And hundreds of years go by where this promise about David's family still, like, is there. It's looming. And that there's going to be a king, you know, who will reign forever. Uh, and it just seems to be a distant memory. But then... Out of nowhere, in the same city where David was born, Jesus is born. And the New Testament starts. You guys know what the first verse of the New Testament is? Matthew 1.1. The book, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. It's, it's, It's this way of saying, you know, like hundreds of years have gone by. Israel's like nothing, like it once was, but the promise is still intact. I'm still saving the world. And, you know, that's what you ever, ever wonder, like, why are all these genealogies in the Bible? Like, why do I have to read all these names? The reason is because they're a way of saying the promise is still intact. Like, if you, when you read genealogies in the Bible, just think God's faithfulness. God sticks with his people through thick and thin. He's saving the world. He's still doing it through the son of David. And when Jesus starts his ministry, the first thing he says is the kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. People start calling him the son of David uh, because this whole story is about God and what he's like and what he's doing. And part of the reason we struggle with reading the Bible is because we tend to read it like it's about us or something. It's not about you. It's about God and what he's doing particularly how he's saving us. And so Jesus shows us, you know, Jesus comes and he shows us that God's near. Like he even becomes a man. He's so near. He lives in the same world we live in like we live in it. Uh, He shows us that God's a God of grace. He buys us back from sin and death. The price of that is the death of Jesus, the true son of David. And he pays it willingly. Jesus shows us that God is faithful. He won't let go of his people. Death won't even stop him. He rises from the dead. We just celebrated it. 
Nothing can stop him because he's the king and he created a world that's supposed to be a certain way. The way we talked about at the very beginning of the semester is, called, is a Hebrew word called shalom. It means peace, uh, but it means so much more than peace. It means universal flourishing. Think like everything is just working the way it's supposed to be and there's harmony and peace. And that's the world that God created and it doesn't include things like sadness and pain and alienation and heartache and anxiety and conflict and any of that stuff. That's all not part of the plan. And now that Jesus is on the throne, God's shalom is extending out to the ends of the earth. And all that's left is for Jesus to come again. That's it. And that'll just be the beginning of a new story of shalom, of what the world was always meant to be be like, of God's nearness and his grace and his faithfulness and love forever. And I just want to leave you with this. The story you're living in matters. Like, what story are you living in? If you're living in a story where life is about acquiring things and living in comfort and feeling good and living long, and if there is a God, you got to make sure he, he, you stay on his good side. If, you know, you got to live a certain way. If, you know, that's how most of the world lives. If this is the story you live in, though, where a God of grace draws near to a people who have turned from him and he saves them and lives life forever with them in paradise, that'll make you live a certain way. Like if that's your story, you'll live a certain way. Uh, You know, for instance, you're in college, you'll study hard, but not as if your life or future depends on it at all, because it doesn't. Uh, You'll love and pursue people, not to make God happy with you, but just because you've been loved and pursued by God. And so why wouldn't you extend that? Um, you know, you'll, when sad stuff happens, you'll be sad. But not without the hope that the sadness is all going away someday. Like the sadness is going to be temporary. You see how the Bible's story, the story of Jesus, which is what the Bible is, is everything. Like nothing else comes close to that. No way of living, no like, you know, driving force of life comes anywhere near to that. So make that your story tonight and make it your story forever. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, we need a lot of help to make this our story uh, because we face many obstacles to that, including our own hearts, uh, which are like David's heart in this story. Uh, quickly forgetting what you're about, uh, quickly clinging to worldly ideas of what's right and good and what life is about and how we should live. And I pray that uh, the story would be embedded in our hearts more, the story of your pursuit of the lost, of the broken, of the messed up, uh, to bring us into your glorious kingdom. Uh, I pray that we would be a part of extending that out at UConn and in our families and wherever else we go. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.